invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Obadiah. Take a look at the book of Obadiah and you say, well, this will be just one message and we'll be done, right? Not on your life. (laughs) I don't want to just spend one message on Obadiah. This afternoon we want to look at our first message from Obadiah. And that is a message entitled, Deceived by Pride. Now, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament, only 22 verses. Uh, There are perhaps uh, people who feel that this book is not worth reading, and that it really should have been omitted from the Bible, and if it was, it would not be missed. And yet the shortness of the message does not render it less important or less significant. Like other minor prophets, the message is primary, it is pertinent, it is practical, and it is poignant. It is a message that can be geared to this day in which we are living. As one Bible teacher said, none of these minor prophets are extinct volcanoes, rather they are distinct action. There is no cold ash in them, any of them, and they are spewing hot lava. Obadiah's prophecy is a devastating judgment against a little kingdom by the name of Edom. And so before we look at what Edom is, notice with me, first of all, who is Obadiah? Who is Obadiah? Notice verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen, arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Now the name Obadiah means servant of Jehovah. Servant of Jehovah. Jehovah. I have a Bible which I believe wrongly introduces this book as worshiper of Yahweh. I'm not a Yahweh fan, okay? I don't believe that's a correct uh, interpretation of that particular word. It's Jehovah is the right way to think of that. And I won't go into all the arguments concerning that, but there is a whole group, a cult even, called the Yahweh cult. And uh, it's something that you have to beware of if you ever hear about it. But a lot of uh, commentators want to use that word Yahweh, uh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, but the correct pronunciation, the correct word is Jehovah. And I'll leave it at that, okay? But he is one of the four prophets about whom we know absolutely nothing except that he wrote prophecy. The other three prophets are Habakkuk, Haggai, and Malachi. These four prophets are really kind of cloaked in anonymity, if I can say it right, which I'll, I'll get, uh, get it right when I get home. Obadiah is like a ghost writer. 
He's there, it's like he's there, but we don't really know too much about him. He lived up to his name, though. He was a servant of God. You know, a servant doesn't boast about his genealogy. Neither does he boast about his exploits or his experiences. He doesn't push himself forward. He has to demonstrate by what he does that he can even claim the place of a servant. So Obadiah is just a prophet, but he's a prophet chosen of God to write one of the great prophecies of the Scripture. Now, we read here a very harsh declaration by a prophet named Obadiah against someone called Edom. So who is Edom? Edom is the key to this little book. And so we shall have to go back to Genesis to have a record of the generations of Edom or generations of Esau. Genesis 36 and verse 1 says, Now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom? So Esau and Edom, one and the same. That's what the Bible tells us, Genesis 36.1. Genesis 36.8 and 9 says, Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Again, very plain, very straightforward. You want to know who Edom is? It's Esau. And these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. So that's the record that's given to us, and it's given to us and repeated three times. And although I'm I'm sure that Moses did not know, but the Spirit of God knew that this would need to be emphasized. Esau is Edom, and Edom is Esau. Otherwise, I don't think he would have repeated it three times, but it needs to be emphasized. The Edomites are those who were descended from Esau, just as Israelites descended from Jacob. Now, I think we can, uh, no doubt, most of us here would remember the story of Esau. Esau is that of the twin sons, one of the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Now, these boys weren't identical. We know that. Actually, they were quite opposite. And the record given back in Genesis 25 begins as Rebekah is about to give birth to these twins. Genesis 25:22 says, And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. So from the very beginning, these two brothers were struggling against each other. Esau, uh, you know, kind of that outdoorsy guy, he loved to hunt. Uh, he would have fit right in some, uh, with some of you here uh, in the north woods. And uh, Jacob, he would rather have stayed at home. He would learn to cook. And by the way, fellas, there's nothing wrong with learning to cook. Sometimes if you want to survive, you better learn to cook. But uh, Jacob would rather stay in the house. 
And we would sometimes say, well, he was tied to mama's apron strings. However, Jacob had a spiritual discernment that Esau did not have. Esau was a man of the flesh, did not care for spiritual things. In fact, he so discounted his birthright, he would be willing to trade it to Jacob for a bowl of soup. Again, we read about that in Genesis chapter 25. Now, he didn't sell his birthright because he was so hungry that he was about to die, nor because there wasn't anything else to eat in the house. You know, I know some of you guys, you probably come home and you open the fridge. Wait, Mom, honey, there's nothing to eat. No, that's not why he did this. It's because he had a desire of the flesh. And he was willing to trade all the spiritual heritage for a whim of the moment. The man who had the birthright was in contact with God. And he was going to be the priest of his family. He was a man who had a covenant with God. Uh, He was a man who had a relationship with God. In fact, Esau was said, I would rather have a bowl of soup than have a relationship with God. Know anybody like that? I think we can all probably think of somebody like that. Well, this is an illustration of great truth for even us as believers today. It is a picture of many Christians. A believer has two natures within him, and they're struggling against each other. Galatians 5, 17 says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Two natures. And the two natures of the believer, the new nature and the old nature, they are opposed to each other. Esau pictures the flesh, the old nature, and Jacob pictures the spirit, the new nature. Now, when we get to the name Edom, the word Edom means red or sunburned. A sunburn occurs when the skin is able to absorb all the rays of light except the rays that make it red. The sunburned man in Scripture is a man who could not absorb the light of heaven. And it burned him. And listen, the light of heaven will either save you or burn you. You will either absorb it or you will be burned by it. This is always true. Esau represents the flesh. He became Edom, and Jacob became Israel, a prince with God, and he represents the spirit. Now, having seen Esau in the first book of the Old Testament, look with me at the last book of the Old Testament. Notice some very strange language in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. In Malachi chapter 1, it says this, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now that's very strange to hear coming from God, isn't it? 
I have loved Jacob and hated Esau. Well, for some people, that would present a problem. One Bible student approached his teacher and asked, I have a problem with this statement in Malachi. I cannot understand why God said he hated Esau. And the teacher replied, young man, I am having a problem with that verse too. But the problem is different from yours. I can understand why he hated Esau, but I cannot understand why he loved Jacob. Can you understand why God loved you? I can't. Well, the reason why the little book of Obadiah is so important is that it's the only place in the Bible where we find an explanation of why God hated Esau. The book magnifies Esau, and it is as if you're looking through a microscope and you see um, Edom. Esau becomes a great number of Esau's, and that is the kingdom of Edom. God never said he hated Esau and loved Jacob until he he came to the last book of the Old Testament. And both men had become nations. There was Edom on the one hand, and there was Israel on the other. Israel was mightily used of God throughout the centuries. Uh, It produced men like Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and Hezekiah and Nehemiah and Ezra. On down the line, we could go on and on. Edom turned its back upon God. But what was it that caused God to hate Esau and to hate the nation? Look at verse 2. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. So we come to the sin of Edom. The sin of Edom. This was a great people. They were a great people, as we're going to see in this book. And they're going to be brought down. Obadiah gives this prophecy which looks to the future, but from where we stand today, we see that it's already been fulfilled. What was great? the great sin of Edom which brought about God's judgment upon her? Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, The pride... The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Notice, the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. What was it for which God hated Edom? It was pride. Now, many people would not think that was much of a sin, would they? You say, is that all? Listen, pride is bad. But you know, uh, it's not as bad as all that, is it? You know, we today have things all out of proportion concerning sin. Think of it this way. Suppose I knew a certain Christian. Maybe he was drinking very heavily. And there are those today who call themselves Christians who say, well, drinking's not so bad. You can have a little bit here. 
You know, there's, this, is a, this is a controversy today among Christians about alcohol. But if, suppose you come across a Christian who couldn't handle it, and he starts to drink pretty heavily. And this person came to you to ask your advice, or some person came to you to ask your advice, what should the church do with this person? And I'm sure most of us would probably say, well, he ought to be put out of the membership of the church, and I would agree with that. But suppose I told you an officer of the church, one of the, uh, one of the officers of the church was caught by the police the other night. He was caught in a supermarket breaking into the safe. Now, this is not true to any that I know of, of any of the officers of our church, okay? This is a hypothetical case. Well, I'm, say, I'm sure you would say he ought to be put out of the church, too. Well, I'd agree with you with that. Someone who's drunk is a church member on a regular basis, ought to be put out. Some officer of the church ought to lose his office, ought to be disciplined out of the church if he's caught stealing from a supermarket. But suppose, though, I told you I knew of a certain church member who was filled with pride, who was one of the proudest persons I have ever met. I dare say that you would not suggest that we put him out of the church. Many of you have a very tender heart, and you would say, well, I think, Pastor, you should go talk to him and tell him that he's wrong to have pride. But you know, it's really not that bad of a sin, not like getting drunk, not like stealing from the supermarket. At least it's one that doesn't show It's not like getting drunk. It's not like stealing. It's not like lying. Would it surprise you if I told you in the sight of God, pride is much worse, much worse than getting drunk? The Bible does have a great deal to say about the sin of drunkenness. It does. It contributed to the downfall of Israel and of Babylon and the kingdom of Alexander the Great and Rome. And it's going to contribute to the downfall of the United States. But it has brought down many great nations and it will bring down our nation. But I, may I say to you, in God's sight, pride is worse than drunkenness. This is something which gets down to where we live today. This is right where the bat hits the ball. This is where the plane of your life and my life touches down on the runway of the life of God. We are given here a proper perspective concerning pride. Pride is the sin of sins. It's one of the worst sins of all. It's something that the scripture condemns above everything else. God has said that he hates pride. And if that is the thing that Edom is eaten up with, God can say, Esau, I have hated you because of your pride. Notice the writer of Proverbs, Proverbs 16, verse 6, or verse, uh, Proverbs 6, verse 16. These six things doth the Lord hate, 
Yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. What was number one? A proud look. The number one thing that God hates. When a man or a woman walks into a church and looks at some poor saint who is known to have committed a sin and that person lifts his head and puts his nose in the air, that in the sight of God is worse than a drunk. And I'm not condoning drunkenness, believe me. But pride is much worse. Now this is not all that God has to say about pride. God says that he resists the proud but he always on the side of the humble. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate. John tells us the pride of life is not of the Father. Where does pride of life come from? If there's anything that comes from the devil, that would be it. You know, a great many Christians today have a pride of race or a pride of face and even the pride of grace. They are proud that they've been saved by grace. I'm cautious about using that word proud. Listen, your salvation ought to not make you proud. It's something you... You, you don't necessarily brag about. It's something about which you glorify God for, and it's something that should humble you. Aren't you ashamed of yourself that you've been saved by grace because you're such a miserable sinner? And I'm not trying to point my finger at you folks this afternoon and without pointing the finger right back at myself because... I'm just as a horrible sinner as you are. I wish I had something to offer God for salvation. But I don't. I have nothing. And therefore, I must be saved by grace. And I cannot boast about that. There are too many people boasting about the fact that they've been sinners. Yay, I was a great sinner once upon a time. And, you know, God saved me by his grace. And they go around boasting about that. I call that a bragamony, not a testimony. There's a difference. There's a difference. God gives grace for us to be humble. Paul wrote in Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What kind of mind did Christ have? He had a lowliness of mind. He said in Matthew 11.29, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Pride is that which is destroying the testimony of many Christians and has made them very ineffective for God. They go in for show, but the thing they are building is a big haystack. They're not building on the foundation of Christ, even the gold and silver and precious stones. Pride has a great many believers down for the count of ten, has them pinned by the shoulders to the mat. 
and they're about all but gone. Pride, after all, was the sin of Satan. He said in Isaiah 14, 13, and 14, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon also upon the mount of congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Pride was also actually the root of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. He strutted around like a peacock in the palace of his kingdom in Babylon. It tells us in Daniel, the king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon have I that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Well, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Later on in Daniel 4, we read, While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. That was no accident. You know, the psychologists today would call Nebuchadnezzar's condition hysteria. And it leads to some form of amnesia. This man did not know who he was, and he went out and he acted like an animal in the field. Why? Because when a man is lifted up with pride, he's not lifted up, but has come down to the level of beasts. God debased Nebuchadnezzar, brought him down to the level of beast of the field. What is pride? I'll give you a definition of it. Pride of heart is an attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. Pride says, I can live and do just fine without God. We find here in the book of Obadiah that the pride of heart had lifted up this nation of Edom, just like Esau, who had despised his birthright. Even in the home of Isaac, where there was plenty to eat, he liked that bowl of soup, and he liked it more than his birthright. He didn't care about God. He didn't care about spiritual things. In despising that birthright, he despised God. And now Esau had become a or Esau, yeah, Esau had become a great nation, and he declared its ability, we can live without God. Notice here uh, as well, uh, it says, Thou that dwellest in the cliffs of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? He lived in a very unique place. Uh, he lived in the rocky mountain fastness of a rock-hewn city of Petra. I understand it's still in existence today. I've heard, I've had fellow preachers that have gone to uh, that area and they have uh, seen the city at themselves. And it's still there. And, and many who see it are overwhelmed by the size of the city. It's ready-made city hewn out of rock. It is protected by the entrance way, which is a very narrow place. Uh, a horse and a rider can get through, but that's just about all. You can do some twisting and some turning, and it was therefore a city which could be easily defended. It was secure. They dwelt in the clefts of the rock. 
They were living in great buildings which are hewn out of the solid rock inside a great canyon and up and down the sides of it. They were perfectly secure. At least they thought they were. The Edomites had signed a declaration of independence. They had a false sense of security. They had severed their relationship with God. They had seceded from the government of God. They had revolted. They had rebelled against him. And that leads us to the cost of Edom's sin. Verse 4. Though thou shalt exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. Thou shalt exalt thyself as an eagle. Eagle in a, is used in Scripture as a symbol of deity. The Edomites were going to overthrow God, as Satan had attempted to do, and they were going to become their own deity. They were going to hand the business of God uh, that God was supposed to handle. They were going to handle it. And though they had set thy... Uh, it says here, uh, set thy nest among the stars. It's a sin of Satan. You see, he sought to exalt his throne above the stars. God says, thence will I bring thee down. I wonder how many people today are attempting to run their lives as if they were God. They feel they don't need God. They can live without him. And the interesting thing is that when God made us, he did not put a steering wheel on any one of us. Why? Because he doesn't want us to guide our lives. He wants to guide our lives. When you and I run our lives, we're in the place of God. We're in the driver's seat. We're the ones who are the captains of our little ships, and we're the ones going through the water just to suit ourselves. That is pride. And anyone who reaches that position, if they continue in it, is committing a sin which is fatal because it means he's going to go down into a lost eternity. I want you to notice, as you look again through the microscope of Esau, Edom is the incarnation of Esau, there stands Esau, and what do you see? You see a human animal. You see animalism in the raw, and you see it in all its terrifying ugliness. And I'm not saying that we descended from animals, okay? But I think animals can teach us some things. Here you have men acting like animals. You know, the teaching of evolution as a fact of science, is the greatest delusion the modern age that we live in has. For the life of me, I cannot understand, apart from the unregenerate mind, how people can honestly look at man and say, millions and millions of years ago, this and that or that happened, and eventually uh, a cell split and became two cells and so on and so forth. And then as they uh, were swimming along, they grew legs and began to walk on the earth and on and on it goes. And man has been brainwashed concerning evolution. And the brainwashing continues in our schools today. It's a proven fact that this is how man came about. Is it? 
the strong and intelligent objections that have been given reliable by reliable scientists, they're completely ignored today. Now, we're not going to discuss here this afternoon all the pros and cons about evolution, but I heard one quote that said, the probability of life originating from an accident is comparable to the probability of an unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a printing shop. The startling, amazing thing is that the little book of Obadiah is God's answer to evolution. And this is the reason he said what he did about Edom. You can go to museums all over the world, all over the country, and there will be representations of how man lived hundreds of years ago, and they kind of look like animals, don't they? And yet outside the museums, in the many cities of America, you'll find people living like animals. They may not look like animals, but they're still living like them. And the fact is that God created man on a very high plane, and they are living on a very low plane today. No animal gets drunk. No animal beats his wife. No animal shoots his children or murders or practices homosexuality. Only man does that. Man lives in our day lower than the animals, and they're living like that in Edom in Obadiah's story. Let me share with you just along this way. We've been talking about drunkenness and so forth. As a law enforcement chaplain in the past, I've had some police training myself. And I attended some of that training one time, and they were reviewing the procedures on how to do field sobriety tests. You know, having a person follow an object with their eyes, walking heel uh, to toe uh, on a straight line, holding your foot out at a length of time without falling over. By the way, I don't think I could pass that test today, and I'm not drunk. The older I get, the harder it is to pass it. But speaking how man gets drunk and animals don't, I read a poem that expressed it well. How well do I remember, t'was in a bleak December, as I was strolling down the street in manly pride, when my heart began to flutter, and I fell into a gutter, and a pig came up and lay by my, down by my side. As I lay there in a the gutter, my heart still all a flutter, a man passing by chanced to say, You can tell a man that boozes by the company he chooses. And the pig got up and slowly walked away. Listen, Man has not evolved from the animal world. And tremendous though its achievements, man can sink lower than an animal when he determines to live without God. Remember what God said to the Edomites, thou, Though thou shalt exalt thyself as an eagle, And though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence I will bring thee down. Obadiah continues to set forth a complete destruction here in verse 5. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? Obadiah is saying, if a thief came to rob them, he would take only what he wanted. He wouldn't take everything. And that was also true of the grape gatherer. He would leave some grapes. But God said to Edom, 
when I judge you, the destruction will be complete. Look at verse 6. How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? Now, here is the key verse to the book of Obadiah. Now, you say, I'm about had it, Pastor. It's past my nap time. And, and, but here, listen a little bit longer, okay? This is the key verse. If we think of it as if God has put Esau under a microscope, God says, here, come look, come look. Look at this. Look through the word of God and look at this man. And we know he said, I hate him. Why do I hate him? It's because of his pride. The pride of life. And he's turned his back on me and has declared his ability to live without me. This is the pride of life. You can read the story of Esau back in Genesis and miss this. But when you read it here, you can't miss it. You can take the microscope, you can go back and look at Esau and see what he wanted to trade his birthright for a bowl of soup. And it was for the very simple reason that the birthright meant that he would be the priest in the family and it meant a relationship with God. Esau actually would rather have had a bowl of soup than have a relationship with God. And whenever someone reaches that point, they have sunk to the level of a pig that got down in the gutter. Now let's just wrap this up in verses 7 through 9. All the men of thy confederacy have I brought thee even to border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee, there is none understanding in them. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the Mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Notice again how Edom's pride is brought out in these verses. Just three quick things here. The Edom's boasted in their natural defenses. Remember that ancient city of Petra, once the capital of Edom, known as Selah, had amazing defenses. It was a city carved into the rock. It was accessible only by a narrow canyon, almost a mile long. At the end of the canyon, there was a spectacular city carved into the stone, and it seemed incapable, incapable of being conquered, but yet as the Edomites boasted in their natural defenses, they also boasted in their wisdom. Verse 8, Shall I not destroy the wise men and bring them down? Here's a sobering truth about the pride that God can bring us down at any time. He can shatter our proud deception. He can bring us low. Edomites were proud of their great defenses, but God would break their pride. And then the mighty men of Edom in verse 9, especially the city of Teman, were noted for their wisdom. There's a phrase, men of the east in the Old Testament. It refers to men from Edom and passages like 1 Kings 4.30 and, and uh, talk about the wisdom of the children of the east country. 
And Jeremiah 49, 7 says, Edom, concerning Edom, thus saith the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Tedom? Is, is counsel perished from the prudent? Is their wisdom vanished? See, that was another uh, uh, source of pride, was their, their great wisdom. And then thirdly, they boasted in their alliances. The confederacy, the men that were at peace with thee, verse 7. They thought they had alliances that made them strong. And they were proud about their strength. You know, it doesn't matter how many talents or abilities you may have. It matters not how smart you may think you are. It matters not how many people you think you have on your side. If you become proud in these things, God is going to bring you down. James 4, 6. Do we remember James 4, 6? But he giveth more grace, wherewith he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And that's one of the great lessons here in the little book of Obadiah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.